Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. So, uh, been a bit of a delay from the last one. We were, uh, well, I was doing a couple of things. One, putting my back out again, which uh, slow, always slows things down. And two, trying to pass a motorbike test because I've uh, hit 40 and, and that's what you do. Uh, the back is going to get better, still niggling away. The first half of the motorbike test is passed, so one more one more bit to do and then I will be uh, away and off my little 125 motorbike and onto something that can get over 60 miles an hour. So, got a few articles just to run through this week. Um, the first ones are just about COVID, which... We are all far more comfortable with than we might have been a few, or certainly than we would have been three years ago. I mean, most of us could spell spell coronavirus, but that was that was it a few years ago. Um, but we're all getting far more comfortable about what the idea of COVID is, how we manage and advise athletes that have had problems with, with COVID infections, uh, what we might advise them about their vitamin D levels, their lifestyle, the food that might help. And we're starting, most of us, probably to deal with a bit more long COVID and people that have a variety of symptoms coming off that, that issue. But what is long COVID? Most of us are going with the, well, it sounds like another post-viral fatigue syndrome, and, and treating it like that. But we, there's more and more evidence coming out that that's just not the case. And the first article we're looking at today was just a another another kind of bit of additional work to, to be aware of. And I'd read the first article that came out uh, by the, these guys, and this is the, sort of the follow-up one that's made it into Nature. And this is just about, they were doing, it's the UK Biobank study, and they were doing MRI scans on people's heads just before the pandemic happened. About 500 people they'd scanned. So when the pandemic happened, they said, oh, well, actually we've got lots and lots, of well, probably more than 500 people they'd scanned, but lots and lots of people with scans, and then they had lots of people that then got COVID, because the majority of people have had a form of COVID. Um, and so they re-scanned everyone they scanned previously and noted down if they'd had a COVID-positive test in the past, if it had been a severe COVID, etc., etc. And the first article that came out um, from these guys, and it's a Duad et al., and it's in Nature 2022 from the 28th of April, um, the first article that came out a few months ago noted that there were quite significant changes in the MRI scans. This is a virus that is neurotrophic. It likes the brain. It makes changes with the brain. And post-COVID, people's brains are different. They have a reduction in grey matter thickness. Um, they have tissue jam damage, especially around the olfactory cortex and linking into that loss of stents of smell. There is a reduction in global brain size. There is cognitive decline. These are not changes that we see in normal post-viral syndromes. What we don't know, and, and there doesn't seem to be a, if it's severe COVID, you'll get it. If it's mild, you won't. This is seen across the board in the different degrees of COVID. And how long are these changes going to last? Typically, changes like this seen on MRI scans would be expected to last quite a long time. 
So is this going to be, I suppose there's, there's two questions off this. One, is there anything that we need to be doing with our athletes um, to improve their recovery and the recovery of their brain tissue with regards to their diet? Who knows? Um, I think just continuing with the best advice we've got at the moment and expert evidence. And secondly, are, and this is really, isn't really a sports nutrition one, but just a general, are we going to see increasing dementia and uh, progressive neurological disease in people who have had COVID years down the line? Is there a, um, I don't know if you remember when we had the uh, BSE concerns and everyone said, well, yeah, that, that, wait 20 years and we're going to have a, a whole lot of uh, prion disease and prion d- dementia. It never really came out, but is it going to be the same with COVID? Are we going to see problems down the line? So uh, just a co. I don't normally go into the COVID ones, but I just thought there's a few papers that have made that, that feel as though they are very relevant to the sporting population. That was one. Another one was uh, the antihistamine paper that was put out by the UCL and Cambridge groups, where you think, well, I recommend it for everyone who um, I end up seeing with with hay fever so why would i not recommend uh, an antihistamine and that was called long covid following mild sars 2 covid v infection characteristic t-cell alterations in response to antihistamines from the long covid groups um, at cambridge and ucl um, and the other one was uh, very much on the sports side was uh, and i for- haven't got the uh, the paper right to hand, but it was looking at VO2 changes in people post-COVID and how long that took to return to normal. So there's a few things coming out that, that, that will clearly have an impact on long COVID, return to peak performance, what impact will these uh, neurological changes have on athletic performance and just normal function. The uh, next paper was a, a bit of a switch away. It was uh, looking at, again, there's a, there's a lot of stuff come out over the last few years on, on looking at low energy availability, but in male athletes. So there was the kind of position stands coming out, the idea that reds can happen in men. It's not just this, this move forward from just being the female athlete triad. Um, and this was just trying to see whether or not a questionnaire, the LEAM-Q questionnaire, could be used instead of a list of other um, markers. So the difficulty of diagnosing REDS, I mean, if you've got a diet sheet uh, and it's accurate and you've got a training plan, you can just work out their energy deficiency, but uh, unfortunately that's too time-consuming and not something most of us will be able to get access to in our athletes, certainly not retrospectively. So uh, often we're left with looking for for kind of symptoms and uh, there's not too much evidence basis for this. What I did like in in this one is there is a lovely, uh, I'll just grab it up, it's on page uh, three or four I think, where's it gone? Um, there's a lovely little summary of the different endpoints. So what were they using as the gold standard um, was the clinical indicators of LEA. And actually, it was a really just nice little, you might want to cut that out and stick that on your um, on your wall, summary of primary and secondary indicators. Uh, and then they used the questionnaire. It, essentially, they, they had sort of 53 controls and then 350 people with 
potential low energy availability, all that the the elite level. Um, essentially, the questionnaire wasn't good enough. Um, the takeaway I took to take away from it, and the change in my um, management will probably be that actually low sex drive in men is quite a good. Um, uh, delineator uh, good at a, it, it telling me is there potential reds um, now that's something that is a GP it's, it can be easy to ask as long, as long as we remember and it's something we cover a lot in cardiovascular disease assessments I think it's probably harder to ask that question the better you know and the more embedded are in your team because it it takes a lot of confidence in the confidentiality of the sort of system you run. So a challenging one for nutritionists, but for GPs, it's it's a pretty common question. We'll all be comfy with it. Um, the uh, most frustrating thing about this, no, not not much. It was a reasonable try. Um, so not not quite not good enough a um tool yet there's still other things you're going to have to do but adding adding to all this this interesting work going on 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 reds and that was called screening for low energy availability in male athletes attempted validation of lean q and it was lundy first offer melon last author then the next article we saw was uh, a short-term low-fiber diet reduces body mass in healthy young men. Implications for weight-sensitive sports. Fu first author, Aretta last author, and this was from Liverpool John Moore. Um, and James Morton was one of the one of the authors. So interesting, all about what that we always. One of these useful studies where we all would advise. Well, we all. Well, not maybe not medically, but it's all we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that um, cutting down your fibre might be something you can do if you're trying to make increased weight loss changes in in the days up to uh, days up to a competition or a weigh in. Um, we all like high fibre diets for health, but but if people have to lose weight and they want advice, then that seems pretty reasonable. Uh, what does this add? Um, essentially, it just quantifies what what weight loss people managed, which was was not very much, but but about so essentially about half a kilogram over five days. Um, so maybe not particularly effective. I, I wasn't able to take much more away from this because unfortunately, they, what I really would have wanted from them was an assessment of performance. What performance change can you make? Um, and, and I couldn't find that to my satisfaction. That satisfaction in there, um, a bit about GI symptoms, a bit about uh, tolerability of people. But how did they do in their sport? Did this method of weight loss impact their performance? Which is what everyone, all the athletes, want to know. And then the next one, the next thing we looked at was a study that made quite a lot of the papers, the Cordioprev study. So this was um, a Mediterranean diet versus low-fat diet study. Now, not particularly focused on sports nutrition, but again, just adding to the our general awareness and, and questions we might get asked from older athletes. Now, the particular group this should be interesting for is those that have got pre-existing cardiovascular disease, which may not be many of our elite athletes, although somehow they managed to find athletes or patients from age 20 to 75 to uh, put in their, in their group. 
um, so I'm not sure who that the 20 year olds were and presumably there were people with some form of familial hypercholesterolemia and uh, maybe maybe they should have been excluded but other than that it was a, it was an interesting study pretty good seven year follow up a thousand patients people with established coronary artery disease and just seeing if they're having another event so very happy with that endpoint really good none of this cholesterol measurement any of that nonsense um, proper endpoints of cardiovascular events um, and what it showed was that Mediterranean diets seem to be um, uh, lead to reduced endpoint events compared to low fat. So um, nothing too surprising from for anyone that is starting to kind of jump on the the bandwagon of low fat probably means high carb, which means probably pro-inflammatory uh, and maybe not too good for you, especially people who have got damaged coronary arteries or cerebral arteries and we just we don't want to do any more harm. So uh, low fat diets, if people are asking about them um, or trying to I suppose from our point of view, think of high carbohydrate diets for performance if they've got past events. I think we'd probably be steering them more towards what what performance can you get with a Mediterranean diet, which should allow for plenty of leeway on managing training. The next article was on post-exercise cooling, uh, very much on my mind because at the moment... I am in the UK, it's just got a bit warmer and uh, keeping a close eye out for people coming in with heat illness um, in my military groups. Um, uh, so thinking about ice cold water immersion and using it as a treatment. This was um, from the uh, Frontiers in Sport and Active Living and it was just they'd done a series of articles on the use of post-exercise cooling. And I just enjoyed the editorial. It was a nice little rundown on what's the evidence and, and, and is it any use. Uh, and it was published 24th of February 2022. I suppose on the background, I've been enjoying a lot from the stuff from Rhonda Patrick. I really enjoyed the article she published in Gerontology on the effect of heat and sauna. Um, I'm sure like many people, I've turned on to Wim Hof, um, who aware of for many years from the work he was starting to try and get some proof for on the impact of uh, cold water immersion on depression um, and enjoying obviously his BBC show with the celebrities. So um, does it in, again, I think a few of us were fairly aware and, and had that kind of, well, post-exercise cooling, yes, um, where's its use? Probably helps reduce inflammation, probably allows you to increase training volume but um, might reduce the adaptations because you're reducing the inflammation um, and inflammatory changes that might drive those adaptations. So in my head, always been probably good for endurance, but not if you're just wanting to get pure strength or power. And it's a lovely little breakdown of the different modalities and whether or not post-exercise cooling is any good. Um, so, so do recommend that editorial uh, and the last one that we were going to look at was exercise-induced stress behaviour, gut microbiota, brain access and diet, a systemic review for athletes. Uh, and this was just a review looking at what is the interplay between the gut microbiome, uh, the HPA axis, diet um, in people that do high-performance sport. 
Uh, a nice review just running through the animal models and the data so far, but then uh, unfortunately I felt it slightly fell away for good reason um, at the end when it start, tried to start making recommendations because there's just there's just no data that really is good enough yet to, to, to match the kind of gut function, the HPA impact of that, and how does that link in with performance yet? Um, so they gave some recommendations, but uh, understandably pretty weak because there's no good data. And it was a bit disappointing at the end where they just kind of plunked a pro uh, message, very pro probiotics. Um, and uh, uh, my initial response to any time I see two authors do that uh, is to Google and see if I can find if they have any links with uh with probiotic industry and which is a bit unfair because everyone who works in nutrition is trying to get research published on gut microbiota and diet is probably going to have been somewhere linked and funded or assisted or conferenced at a probiotic and big pharma funded conference and, and that was the case in this time um i said yeah so i'd hoped they had just would have just left it with um with where most of us would feel, which is just, um, we don't know what's next. We don't know if probiotics help. We don't know if fermented foods help. And we don't know how prebiotics will help. But we would imagine that a, a gut microbiota that functions to um, influence the HPA, the gut, and how it influences the HPA axis... Um, would be manageable in the future, uh, and let's let's wait for that. So, um, yeah, interesting for the first half. Um, really good for some of the bits of the first half, but uh, tried to stretch it further than I think we can with our current evidence. Hope you're all doing well. Hope um, you're all managing to get some good training done this week, and I will chat to you soon. Thanks very much.